on the field, people will come. And it doesn't happen. You have to look at how you're doing business. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of White Sox Business, a podcast that wishes it had actual White Sox baseball to talk about, but we don't. I am your host. Never again. No, never again. That's breaking news here at White Sox Business. James and I have canceled baseball for eternity. I am your host, Tom Fernelli. Joining me is James, the man who has spent the last 72 hours preparing a presentation he hopes will convince his wife to let him buy FIFA and commandeer the TV for the next eight to 10 weeks. The Bought it last night, baby. Did you? <laughs> yes. Who knows if the, you know, the quarantine will you know, shut down deliveries before it gets here on Wednesday, but we'll make sure you it. make sure you open the package with gloved hands and disinfect the game before you put it in. I'm I'm gonna download the game. I'm not gonna buy it. Oh, okay. Cool, cool, cool. Did you did you binge any good shows over the weekend while you were waiting for FIFA to show up? Uh, we haven't watched a ton. I finished The Outsider. It, it's whatever. It, I, I I will forget it soon. <laughs> That's a ringing endorsement. <laughs> if I've ever heard one, it was whatever. I'll forget it soon. I play I played a lot of FIFA. In fact, I sent you the screenshot. I beat your beloved Liverpool with Aston Villa. I plan on avenging it. I I didn't I did not send you a screenshot when I beat like Aston Villa with Liverpool like six to one because I thought you'd be like, well, why the, that wasn't a fair fight? Who cares? And you're a traitorous son of a bitch. You know that. <laughs> but did, did you, before we get to the White Sox, the good news is that it's looking more and more like the Premier League is just going to void this season and nobody's going to get relegated. <laughs> So and also Liverpool loses a championship. No, no, they're going to the, the, the current what I last read is they're currently going to award Liverpool the title simply because they've got such a huge lead that nobody's really objecting to doing it anyway since it was an inevitability. The biggest question is going to be what they do with relegation, promotion and Champions League spots, but all the all the hubbub I'm reading is that there won't be any relegation. So it looks like I'm going to get another year of Villa in the is, Premier is League. Is that where Aston Villa was no, currently maybe? located? Yes. So, yeah, since we last joined you, no baseball has been played. Oh, I should probably let the people know that we've got an interview with Keith Law on today's show. Yeah, where we do not address the Trevor Bauer wiffle ball game. <laughs> well, that I why wasn't that on the list of questions? <laughs> Oversight. Wow, we really let's call him back. <laughs> let's get Keith right. back on the phone and ask He's him. Got time. <laughs> He's got like us, as he admits in the interview, which we'll get to later. He's got nothing else to do right now. Uh so yeah, so not much has happened since we last talked to you because again, there's been no baseball. The White Sox the original plan for Major League Baseball was, you know, teams were gonna stay at the facility and then it was like, okay, no, maybe we should start sending everybody back home. Have you been talking to anybody within the White Sox over the weekend about what their response is? I know you wrote a little bit about it, but so far to this point, do they have a plan? What is the plan? Is there is it reasonable to have a plan? Well, their 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 plan when they last talked to us openly was to like, well, the facility provides a place for people to work out. Maybe we'll keep guys ramped up, waiting for things to resume. And, uh, you know, maybe this is the best place for them because it's a controlled environment and they have medical staff on here. Maybe we'll just all stay here. That plan, like, that sounds like it's from another time. And it was obviously like 72 hours ago. Like, it got changed by a league memo within like two hours of them speaking to us. So right now, the whole thing the White Sox are doing is responding to basically what the league is going to tell them. And that just keeps rapidly ramping up in severity about how much everyone just needs to scatter to the winds and go into home quarantine so quickly that they're hesitant to put out any kind of like, all right, this is what we're doing. Um, I mean, I know minor leaguers have been sent home and um, they're, uh, they obviously don't really have the options that 40 man guys do as far as like a more of a built in negotiated process about getting an allowance and whatnot. So they're more in a situation where just like, well, we have to clear out, the facility because the MLB has ordered us to and so head on out and their pay structure hasn't really been there hasn't been any move to kind of pay them because there's no real structure in place for it at this point I'm not saying like the White Sox are going to throw them to the wind like 
perpetually or even if that's their intention but as far as any kind of any kind of plan to make them whole again or, or fix the fact that they're basically being sent home without a season's paychecks or any kind of plan you know, it's not in place yet and i think that's something that's going to have to come from the league at large rather than the white Sox are a team that tends to speak to the league more and work out what they think needs to be addressed and then follow the when the league puts out a proclamation than just acting on their own um i think uh I, mean, I remember talking about the minor league pay issue um, last year when, like, Toronto just, like, announced yeah. um, their raise in pay. And, like, you know, talking to, like, the White Sox, they were kind of like, I thought we were all talking to the league about what we were going to do. And, like, yeah, we all wanted to, like, see the situation improve. But, like, it's the subject of, like, litigation that we're supposed to be working on a settlement. So why are we just <laughs> – why is one team acting independently? They, they think very much in terms of, like, we are a part of the league and we're going to – you know, work with them and, and come out with a broad solution rather than just kind of running amok on their own. So um, that's not really a clear answer, but that's generally my impression from so talking to the past and talking to now. Or, or, so we don't know if they're going to follow the NBA model of waiting for Luis Robert to donate a million to minor leaguers first. I mean, uh, I mean, Reinsdorf already and, and Rocky Wirtz already worked out something for the Bulls. Um, you know, when we asked about that question. Uh, what was it Friday? Who knows what day it is anymore? Uh, I, yeah, time has like, ceased. Well, we don't to really have. To me. We don't really have a plan because we at this point we haven't been told we're not playing 162 games. So how many games would we compensate them for? Because we don't know what's going to happen. Um, and theoretically, no no games have been canceled yet, so they don't really know what shortcoming that they'd be addressing with their stadium workers or game day workers because that you know none of that's actually been hashed out. When it actually has, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if. Uh, you know, Ryan Sorf is famous for taking care of his employees that he does do something. And it seems like he worked pretty quickly to do it with the Bulls. So I would expect something similar, but they're very much going to wait for the league to actually figure it out. And since it keeps changing every two hours, they're kind of in a holding pattern. Yeah, it's I mean, it's such a difficult thing to navigate right now because i mean they've you know delayed baseball for at least two weeks that was the last official proclamation from major league baseball but the fact is i would be shocked beyond belief if we've got a baseball game before june at this point because i mean like literally on sunday night the the cdc pretty much said hey for the next eight weeks no gatherings of 50 plus people anywhere so that would put us in late may then you figure if that you know, that's like a timeline for when you're, you know, re- when, when you're having your house or something remodeled or, you know, you're building a new stadium when they give you the timeline. It's never done on the timeline. Timelines are always a little bit optimistic. So I would guess that, I mean, we might see a situation where best case scenario, like maybe teams are getting back into a sort of mini camp in June in hopes of gearing up the season to start in July. And we're just playing like a half season over three or four months. Yeah, I think a half season would be great, all things considered. <laughs> I think that's the most dark. optimistic kind of hope at this point, which is just uh, – it's it's so strange. I have We have no idea. Like you said, from what the White Sox talked about on Friday to where we are now recording this, things are changing so quickly that it – Yeah, they were talking about like keeping guys ramped. Like They were like, well, we don't want to like undo our starters. We don't want to like – we want basically like – all their starters were up to like four to five innings, 60 pitches. And they were like, well, we don't want to like keep ramping them up towards like 70 and 80, but we don't want to like ramp them down. And, you know, now they probably will just wind up being, uh, going down to some degree or at least. Yeah. How do you just keep, keep the ramp up process, which is like this very methodical thing. It takes so much to get like Mm -hmm. a pitching staff ready for a season like spring training is too long, but in terms of like pitching preparation, it really isn't. There's everyone else is kind of long for the ride. How do you just basically put that on pause for two to three months? It's kind of crazy and probably going to result in a lot of injuries. But yeah, I was, I was thinking that too. I think we're going to see an uptick in pitcher injuries for sure, which is just, you know, woo. I mean, it, especially if we essentially go through the ramp up process twice because. Mm-hmm. Basically, ramp up process is where you see so many pitchers get hurt the first time. Um, so you're just going to have that twice in one year. Hooray. Uncharted territory. We're going to learn things that we don't want to learn. Uh, 
I think now is a good time to transition to our interview with Keith Law, because speaking of uncharted territory, as Keith wrote about, and we will talk to him about in the interview, there's no sports being played, which means that the draft is going to occur, or at least they plan to hold it this summer, and scouts and whatnot teams don't really have any baseball to watch the players that they're going to be potentially drafting. We talked to Keith about that. We asked him for his thoughts on it, what it could look like going forward, and we also asked him about, you know, the White Sox farm system, including questions about, yes, Nick Madrigal, who he did not have in his top 100 or his top five. And James, before we get to the interview, I want to commend you because you are such a big big Nick Madrigal homer for not jumping through the microphone and choking Keith Law instead of asking him recent questions. I think his perspective on Nick Madrigal is extremely interesting, and I wanted to find out about it and not, like, you know, treat it like an interrogation. Like, he brings off, like... Everything that he pointed out is something I'm going to be watching with Madrigal like, going forward. So I wanted to find out more about <laughs> it. hope you enjoy the interview with Keith. And uh, we'll be back afterwards to talk a little bit about the uh, the the Section 108 Twitter White Sox Twitter tournament. Oh, Jesus Christ. If you were to guess, on average, how many days people in the United States have to wait to see a doctor, what would you say? A week, maybe? Actually... On average, people have to wait around 29 days to see a doctor in major U.S. cities, basically a month. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment ASAP. That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides that treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel any time. So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com slash White Sox for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash White Sox for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. We now welcome in the senior baseball writer for The Athletic, Keith Law. Keith, thank you for joining us here on White Sox Business. Uh, You're quite welcome. I have nothing else to do. (laughs) I feel like there is a lot of that going around for everybody right now I, I don't know about you but it, like the canceling of sports generally for thursday and friday kind of was just okay you know it's it's a weekday there's other things to do but being at home over the weekend with absolutely no sports on television was when it really sunk in for me for me it was it, it has been and trust me i i know we're not complaining we understand like we're we're home we're healthy we're safe like this is all in that context of our sort of privilege here but it was very strange for me to be home. I've been home now for 10 days during March. <laughs> I'm not usually home for a 10-day stretch during March, ever. I might be bouncing around more than most baseball writers because I'm trying to do the amateur stuff and then got spring training and bite. What what is today? 60. So I was actually supposed to be home today, but I was supposed to be in Florida for part of last week. And then in theory, I would have been flying to Arizona in the next 48 hours. Uh, so it's very strange to be here at a time of year when I am like, if anything, travel stressed, right? Thinking yeah. I need to be in three places at once and I want <laughs> to see all the players and had a nice list going of all these players I was going to target when I was in Florida and particularly Arizona. And now I'm just like, I'm home for a while. And I kind of have a feeling I'm not going to be out at any games for maybe two months Maybe longer, maybe not until the beginning of June, which, you know, kind of sucks, obviously. Um, but that's the situation we're in. Yeah, I mean, it's, you wrote last week about it because, like, you're you're off the road now. And it's funny because it's like there's an anxiety with knowing you have things to do. But then there's like a whole brand new anxiety when you know that you have nothing to do. You know how you wrote about how teams are preparing for the draft, which is still supposed to take place on June 10th, but, you know, as the CDC came out on Sunday night saying no gatherings of 50-plus people for at least eight weeks, that would put us into late May, just a few weeks before the draft is scheduled to begin. So do you think the draft will be delayed, or do you foresee a scenario in which it's possibly canceled? So this is strictly my opinion. I did reach out to Major League Baseball, and they deferred comment. Not just They didn't decline comment, but essentially they said, 
we can't even say anything on background right now. We just don't know, which I understand, right? Their number one priority is trying to figure out when the major league games might resume. Um, well, first, the logistics of essentially disbanding spring training and then then figure out what the major league schedule is. At some point, my guess is maybe in early April or so, they will ha- have an actual discussion on what to do with the draft. And my personal opinion, based on talking to some team sources but not talking to anybody from Major League Baseball, is that they will probably push the draft back. I'm thinking to the end of June or beginning of July – and the biggest reason for that, no, no one's coming back, right? They're not mm-hmm. playing. The colleges, I don't think any colleges are going to play again. Um, and a lot of high schools aren't going to play again. But they do have to have some time for, I think the biggest thing is to to give players a chance to essentially do something. Now, maybe that's Major League, maybe Major League Baseball puts together some kind of combines. I know of private entities that are talking about trying to organize essentially showcase type events or co- or combine like events between whenever we're allowed to gather again and when the draft might take place. Because if nothing else, teams are still going to want to physically see the players and make sure that they're fine, right? One of the things you do at the end of a typical spring, you're running out to see players at conference tournaments or maybe even the, the weekend of the regionals of the uh, NCAA tournament just to make sure everybody's fine because you don't want a situation like the year that TCU had two guys get hurt essentially right before the draft, Matt Perk and Kyle Winkler. If you went and saw them right before the draft, you would have backed off. I mean, teams did back off because they weren't a hundred percent and teams, especially after not seeing players for eight weeks or more are going to at least want the assurance that, Hey, these guys are are fine. They may not be at a hundred percent ability wise. They may not be throwing at their full velocity, which just make sure everybody's okay. And, and some kind of combine that has the sanction of Major League Baseball, whether they run it or a third party runs it, would allow that to happen and particularly just consolidate this, the, the typical medical process. If, if Major League Baseball or, or their appointed uh, uh, experts could look at the players and review medical records just one time as opposed to having 30 teams go through 30 processes, just do it once before the draft – that would streamline this a lot. I think make players' lives easier. But all that's going to take time, which to me says, I think the draft was supposed to be June tenth. I think they're going to they're going to have to push it back to make any of this possible. So, I mean, you you said you've talked to Major League Baseball about it. And you've talked to or haven't? Major League Baseball has not gone on and said what they plan to do because they can't. But have any teams given you any idea of what their plans are to prepare for it without being able to scout players individually? Since there's no games to play, so. I, I think that combine would be a good idea. And if MLB is listening, if you put it on the MLB network, I'll probably watch it. But it's right. Do, do teams have, are, are, I'm assuming teams at this point are putting their plans together for how they're going to go about this, correct? So, I mean, that's what's in the article. Uh, and Al Avila's, uh, the general manager of the Tigers, he was the one person who was very comfortable being quoted by name. Others asked, for some kind of anonymity, which was fine because, and a lot of them have been ordered by uh, one, one person told me he was told by the team executives above him. You can't talk to the media about any of this, for example. So, but Avila said to me, look, we can draft tomorrow. We're ready. It's not ideal, but we scouted players all last summer into the fall. We have 600 reports in our system. We have video on most of these players. If you told us tomorrow, go make your one, one pick. We could do it. He's and he brought up the point that I just made too. I mean, I'm essentially borrowing his point. You still want to see these players as close to the draft as you can to make sure everybody's fine, make sure everybody's still healthy. But he said we're prepared enough to be able to do this. They he was, I would say, the most confident of all the people I spoke to in terms of how prepared he feels like his group is to make their selections. He did point out it's easier when you pick first. Right, that that mm-hmm. you do, you're not as worried about right who goes ahead of you in the draft. That is no longer a consideration. And the number of we, I mean, we knew on January first who the three or four names would probably be for the first overall pick. So that is a little bit different. I did speak to some other executives who were much less confident, especially folks whose teams pick lower in the first round. And I mean, most of them were saying things like, "This is a great draft class. We're." You know, we we love it. We we know we're going to get somebody good picking, you know, whatever twentieth or so overall. But they hadn't gone through their process, and I do think it's hard for people. Like, if you've worked in this industry for a while, if you've worked in amateur scouting for a while, you have a process. Every spring basically looks the same. Players change, 
But the process has basically been the same for 30 or 40 years. It's improved incrementally as we have more data, but we don't have as much data this year either because the seasons were yeah. so short. But you feel like you go see a guy once in February, you say, oh, he's better, he's worse. Well, we need to go see this guy again. You call someone else, send in your cross-checkers. I'm going to go back and see this guy again on April 5th. That's all gone. That whole process has been blown up. And I think the comfort that comes from a process that has basically been the same every year that really leads you to believe you're making good decisions has been taken away. And so I do think there are many teams that are just hoping for any opportunity to see these players at least one more time before the draft. And and when I say see players too, and when I talk about a combine, for listeners who are thinking of maybe the NFL combine – I'm not talking about that. Player Scouts want to see players play something that looks like a game, right? If you get a yeah. bunch of players together for a weekend and make up fake teams and just have them play each other a few times, that's what scouts would want to see. That's what Major League Baseball or some third party should be trying to organize. And, that, and heck, I'd go to that. I would absolutely go to that just, just for the chance to see the players one more time. Or for me, a lot of them would be the first time to get another look and make sure, again, that – that they're healthy and maybe see them. There's just so much value in seeing guys facing live pitching or live hitting and seeing how they respond to that, that I think that would go a long way towards improving the confidence of, of scouting directors as they head into whenever the draft should be. I don't know if this is a fair question, but we had on here kind of, how would you prepare if you were kind of running a draft right now? Is it just, you stick to the board you have at the moment and accept there are going to be gaps in your info that spring season would normally be filling, or do you try to project some stuff based on hoping you're going to have some in-person workouts later on or something unconventional? How, how does, how, how, how would you prepare? I guess I stick with the information that I have. So I'll, I'll again, piggyback on Alavila's answers there. If I were a GM or a scouting director, I would have many reports from the summer and some from the fall. And from the first few weeks of this season, we'd have a few hundred reports in and probably prioritize. This would be the one place where it'd be a little different from a typical process, but prioritize the players where we felt like we had more information. So except, for example, there's a pitcher who's on my top 30 draft prospects post, which went up on Monday, uh, Justin Lang, who's from Diano, Texas, a pretty promising high school pitcher who was still who's a converted infielder. And when they put him on the mound last summer, he was 88 to 91. His velocity started moving up pretty quickly and he hit a hundred this spring. That's fantastic. And if the spring had continued, he probably would have kept moving up into the first round. I would have no, um, I would have lower confidence in a kid we've only seen maybe once or twice throwing with that kind of velocity. We don't know how he holds up. Can he maintain that velocity over the course of a spring? Our reports on that player are probably going to be very different from this February and March versus what we saw from him last summer and fall. He played at a program 15 event at Fenway last fall. It was probably the first time he was widely seen as a pitcher, widely seen by the whole industry as a pitcher. You don't have a lot of reports on this guy. So he's going to be lower down in the draft because our confidence level would be like assigning a confidence score on each player based on how consistent our reports were for the limited time that we did see the player. That's probably going to push me to a lot of high school, uh, sorry, a lot of college guys rather than high school guys, to high school position players over high school pitchers, and to high school position players who've got track record, who've been on the scene, scouted a lot over the last year plus versus those who've sort of popped up this spring or even in the fall. And that's probably not fair to a lot of players, probably going to miss a lot of players who are actually really good, but you can only work with the information that you have. And that's going to skew me towards essentially like a flight to safety in a draft that happens to provide quite a bit of college pitching. You know, that, that you mentioned the list that you put out today, your top 30 prospects. And, you know, you have Spencer Torkelson, the first baseman from Arizona State at number one on your list. And as you wrote, you know, He's the best bet to go first overall, though. You know, it's it's never happened, obviously, in a Major League Baseball draft. But do you think that in kind of a perfect storm situation here, this might be the year it's most likely to happen simply because with the lack of data and with, you know, the extra games, like you said, people are going to slip through the cracks or not as much info. Do you feel like Spencer Torkelson in that way is kind of the safest bet and might be more likely to be that first first baseman taken? Yeah, I could see that. I could absolutely see that. I'm not 
really sure what my personal answer would be. I saw both Spencer Torkelson and Austin Martin play last spring. And if you had asked me on June 1st which guy I would take strictly off of my own looks, I would have said Martin because although Torkelson is the better pure bat, uh, Martin is a better athlete and is going to play some skill position. I saw him play outstanding at third base. He's been playing center field mostly this spring. I understand he's looked really good out there. I do tend to favor players at the skill positions, the four up the middle as well as third base, which I always count sort of it's not a position up the middle, but it requires more skill to play than the other three corner positions. That said, in a flight to safety scenario, Torkelson has been a guy since basically he stepped on campus at Arizona State, and he has performed for three straight years, and he's done it against reasonable competition. There's nothing – there's no reason – there would be no real criticism of taking Torkelson at first. right? If you're looking for the safest option there – He's the safest option with that first pick, particularly in a draft where there's no you know, crazy five-tooled Justin mm-hmm. Upton or wunderkind Bryce Harper type from the high school ranks and where the college pitchers are very good, but none of them is clearly 1-1 good to me. I mean, I think Asa Lacey will get consideration for, for the Tigers at one, but they've got two college position players sitting right there who they'd probably – take over Lacey or probably everybody would take over Lacey, Lacey, Lacey being the lefty at Texas A&M. So I think if the draft were tomorrow, I'd bet, you know, 60, 40, it's Torkelson, 40, it's Martin. And that's it. I, I, I don't know. I like, I didn't ask Avila, who are your guys for the first overall pick? It'd be kind of ridiculous. Yeah. But I, it's gotta be those two guys, right? Because we've seen, and again, because we've seen them, we've seen them so much. Whereas, uh, most of the players, if you look on my list today, who are below those two, they're, they've improved recently enough that the track record of our – the history of our looks at them, of our evaluations is a little more mixed, you know, sort of incre- improving over time. Whereas these other two guys, we knew last May they were going to be two of the top players in this draft. Well, continuing on the Torkelson in a nice little way to you know segue more into White Sox mm-hmm. stuff. The White Sox took Andrew Vaughn with their first-round pick in the draft last summer, a right-handed hitting first base, Pac-12 first baseman. How would you compare Torkelson to Vaughn? Uh, they're very different. They look very different. Vaughn, to me, is the high-average, high-on-base guy uh, with some power. Torkelson is more the traditional big slugging first baseman, not going to hit for quite as much average, will strike out some more, but has the 30-plus homer potential that I don't think Vaughn has. I don't want to rule it out because I think Vaughn's power gets a little underrated because he's just such a high-on-base, high-walk guy anyway um, that that's all anyone sees. But I see Vaughn swing, and I think there's no reason that swing can't lead to 20, 25 homers a year. There's, there's no physical reason it can't. And I would like mm-hmm. to think you – know, there's always a risk with these very patient high-walk guys. You know, is he Jeremy Hermida who just gets into these great counts and then ticks? I don't think Vaughn's that kind of hitter. But there's always some non-zero risk that that's what he turns into. He doesn't capitalize. The, the idea of working the count, obviously, is get to you know, 2-0 or 3-1 and get something you can crush. I think Vaughn will do that. Torkelson is more the, the classic you know, slugging first baseman, big power. Going to get on base plenty. Um, but it's a different shape of performance, even if you said to me, in the end, these guys are going to be equally valuable. I'd say, okay, sure. They're just going to get there in different ways. Um, and I think both guys are clearly, they're just first basemen. They're limited to first base and it's going to be their bats that carry them. Um, I, th- I think it became a running bit a little bit about how hard it was to get a good look of a uh, Luis Robert for you for yes. a couple of years, but uh, apparently um, it still is since no one's, I'm not still not going to see him. We're going to go at least till right, June and I still won't have seen him get a hit. Yes. <laughs> so kind of to ask, a, a, try to ask a real question off that. Given that we've maybe had one season of seeing him play healthy stateside, right. I mean, I had the thumb all of uh, 2018, and much of it, maybe half that season, he's playing against vastly inferior competition. Like when he mm-hmm. played in Carolina League for a month, that was kind of ridiculous. What's maybe missing from our understanding of his game that we would usually have for a normal top 10 guy who's about to make his major league debut that we probably have a much fuller understanding of everything he can and can't do uh, you know, compared to Robert? Right. I think that uh, – compared to Robert? Or like I guess what 
what have we not gotten enough looks at Robert to really know how okay. he's going to adjust the majors in a certain way? I, I think that the the problem, you know, obviously, he succeeded everywhere. He has succeeded everywhere he's played once he got healthy, right? So this is not really criticism of him, and I'm not criticizing how the White Sox have handled him either, because he's, despite his size, he's he's pretty young, and unlike a lot of players who've come out of Cuba too, I've never, you know, no one's saying, oh, he might be older than he says he is. Any of that? No, no, no one's ever said that. He is just exceptionally strong and big for his age. And I think the White Sox sort of handled him appropriately. And the moment he succeeded, they moved him up. And so the problem is we just haven't seen him face a lot of upper level pitching. And then he did get to AAA. And of course they were using the happy fun ball last year, which sort of hurt our ability to evaluate everybody in AAA last year. So some of the concerns that I, and, and frankly other scouts have about Robert's ability, particularly to hit, hard stuff inside and on his hands. I do think the way his swing works, he's going to have a weakness there just hasn't been sufficiently challenged yet. And we're probably not going to see that till he gets to the big leagues, at which point it becomes, it sort of turns back to him. How does he make the adjustment? Cause once pitchers see that he's got some vulnerability there, he's going to get that pretty steadily and he's going to have to turn around, show that he can make that adjustment. I don't know if he can, or if he can't, he hasn't really been forced to do that yet. And that to come back to your question, it's just when we saw him, you know, in the Carolina League, obviously I saw him go over or four over five here, but he was like 12 for 10 when I wasn't in the ballpark. And he's, you know, he was clearly too good for that level. He's probably too good for double A anyway. He was too advanced, too strong, too quick. So we just haven't seen him be sufficiently challenged, have to go around the league a couple of times, particularly when, when hitting a regular baseball. And that is not a criticism of anybody in this process. It's just, something we don't know yet. And I'm, I, I think what happens is whenever we start playing again, obviously the, um, we start, we, you know, he'll, maybe he comes out, gets to a great start as pitchers try to figure out where exactly they pitch to him, what pitch type and what pitch location. And once they figure out where he's weak, then that cycle of adjust and re- readjust starts. And obviously, maybe that starts in June rather than starting in April. But that's absolutely no matter when the season starts. That's what I think is going to happen with him. In your uh, in your top 100 prospects and in your individual team prospect lists, you did not have Nick Madrigal in your top 100, and you have him number five in the White Sox system. And I, I understand why. What do you think the best case scenario for Madrigal as a big leaguer is, and what are the odds you think he'll achieve it? I think his best case scenario is he's an average regular um, because you – we have basically in the modern in – truly modern baseball, you don't see guys who hit for high average with no power. He has no power. He's my size um, and he's not – I mean you know, he, he's not Jose Altuve who's, a, who's faster and who has more raw power than Madrigal has. In the last 10 years, I think only one big leaguer has hit 320, hit for an average of 320 or better with an isolated power of under 100. That's D. Gordon, who did it once and then was immediately popped for using performance-enhancing drugs. Whether those two are connected, I can't say, but that's basically how it happened. And uh, that's at least the sequence of events, let's say. You just – you can't because of the way – because I think of how hard pitchers throw and because the way they'll attack hitters who they know can't do that much damage. And Madrigal, it's not that he doesn't have home run power. He doesn't really have a lot of extra base, you know, drive to the warning track kind of power. And I think that just extremely – really limits his upside. And one of the complaints I got from you know, a lot of angry White Sox fans was, well, he has a really high floor. Well, does he? I mean his high floor is that he plays in the big leagues for sure. I think he plays in the big leagues for a long time, but that doesn't make him, you know, maybe more than a extra infielder. There's a good chance this guy plays for a very long time and isn't that far above replacement level because he hits for a sort of empty 280, 290 and plays mostly second base. You know, there are a lot of things, there are a lot of what ifs, right? If if Madrigal could play shortstop, totally different player. If he had one extra grade of power, totally different player. If he was a 65 runner, all of those things would make him, uh, would give him a higher floor and a little bit more ceiling. Um, and I think what what fans who just scout the stat line with him are missing is that, that this profile is, is extremely unusual and does not give him a lot of room for error. He's got to hit 300 um, because to elevate all of his other stats, right? it's all going to come down on his ability, not just to put the ball in play, but to make hard enough contact to hit enough singles 
to hit 300 plus singles and some doubles because he's not going to hit for power. He's not going to draw a zillion walks and he's not going to add a lot of value on the bases or I think, or with his defense enough to make up for the fact that the bat is, is light even given today's extremely power centric offensive environment in the majors. So I, I guess like the people who would make a case for Madrigal are, you know, staking everything on the idea that the contact is just so extraordinarily special that it, it will, you know, overwhelm the, the, the weaknesses that you, you outlined. Like, is it, I guess, how low is his margin of error as terms of he can't lose, he, his strikeout rate, like, can't even pop up to, like, 5%, or is he needs to be a consistent, like, 350 BABIP guy or something like that. Like, how how special does the does he have to be on terms of the, of the, the bat to ball skill and just being able to consistently, what does he have to do to be able to consistently hit for average that that's going to be able to sustain itself in any, uh, to be a regular uh, on the major league level. Well, he's got to make harder, higher quality contact. And he doesn't do that because he doesn't have the strength. Um, I, I have never said, I think he's going to suddenly strike out a lot more because I, I don't have a reason to predict that. Maybe he will. Obviously anybody can, right. They, they all strike out more and they get to the big leagues or just because big league pitching is better. But I have not, like, I don't, I have no reason to predict that Madrigal is suddenly going to be a 9% strikeout guy, which for him would be a tripling of his minor league strikeout rate, but would still make him well above average uh, against all major leaguers. But it's that, yeah, he can put the ball in play a lot, but uh, what kind, right? He's not, again, he's not hitting a lot of balls to the warning track, let alone over the fence. He's not making a lot of very high quality contact where you say, yeah, sure, he's going to be a 350, 360 BABIP guy because he's making that much hard contact, obviously. That, that is the issue, right? I understand the strikeout rate is extremely unusual. He had less, his strikeout rate was less than half of that of the second best strikeout rate in the minors last year, which I think was actually Wander Franco. Uh, it's not that he's making the contact. He's not making the high enough quality contact. It's almost as if, and I don't know that this is actually true. This is more speculative, but it's almost as if he is sacrificing some contact quality to simply make more contact. Now, I don't know that he would be a better hitter if he were focused less on contact and trying to make higher quality contact. Cause I don't know that's in his physical tool set, but that is essentially what the line looks like. And having seen him, like there's nothing I would, I, I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with his swing. I think it's just his build. I don't know that I don't, he's certainly not strong enough to make a lot of high quality contact now. And I don't know that that frame really supports that going forward because he is, he, he is really small and we just don't see a lot of players built like that in the big leagues for a very specific reason that they don't have the particularly, I think the hand and wrist and upper body strength to make consistently high quality contact to get to those high bad All right. Well, I think now it's time for the, uh, the most important question. We're going to ask you in this entire mm -hmm. interview, what TV show or book would you recommend <laughs> to any listener that is currently looking for a way to kill time while trying to cope to a world without sports? Ah, yes. Um, what TV shows have I binged recently? So I watched all of Big Mouth, which is not for all audiences, shall we say. It's for mature audiences only. And it's very I funny, it, yes. But it's very, very funny. And my girlfriend is a... Uh, psychology, uh, psychology, clinical psychologist and vouched for a lot of the content on the show, actually, as like they've clearly spoken to some experts about some of this too. Um, also Fleabag, which I assume most people have seen. Um, I also just watched the cheer documentary on Netflix, which I liked way more than I expected to. I thought it was really well done. Um, you can hear bias cat is here in the background. Uh, for Books. What have I read? I've been sort of tearing through some of the possible Pulitzer nominees. Um, I thought Trust Exercise by Susan Choi was really good. I thought The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead uh, was very strong. Um, Edwidge Danticott's uh, Everything Inside short story collection just won the National Book Critics Circle Award last week. Uh, I thought that was good, although I, I even said in my review as a sort of white U.S. born man, there's a lot of you know, my perspective on that book is always going to be a little bit lacking because she's telling stories of people of color, largely who've immigrated from Haiti to the United States. Like, there's a very specific type of characters and situations that she's discussing there, and I like that's my failing, right? I just know what mm -hmm. I'm missing, but I also know that it's really good. And her her writing is really really fantastic. So those are all brand new um, 
you know, as, as I sort of the Pulitzer will be announced next month, and I like to try to read some of the contenders ahead of it just so I can have an opinion. So I can be the guy who's like, that shouldn't have won. This other <laughs> book should have won. In fact, the one, the book I loved most from last year was called Bowl Away, One Word by Elizabeth McCracken. And nobody talks about that as a contender for any of these awards. And it's like high literature. To, like I thought it was fantastic. I was like, oh, this is going to win all the prizes. And it, it hasn't won anything. But I still actually would still take it over any of the books that I just mentioned, which I've read a little more recently. I, I still think it's the best novel written in 2019 that I've read. Well, here's a topic for you to help kill time during all this. Top 30 Pulitzer snubs. Boom. Put Bowl oh, Away number one and work down from there. Yes, right? Yeah. I could. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'd get to 30. I could give you a few, though. <laughs> Because I've okay, read, well, I have read every single winner of the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. Used to be Pulitzer Prize for the novel. There's some mm-hmm. really terrible ones, particularly if you go back to the 20s, 30s, 40s. Like, there's some really racist books on there, actually. Like, oh yeah, like that. We're not even hiding it. Like, that's just a racist book. And it's like, yeah. oh, that that's that's why that one's not in print anymore, huh? That's why we don't talk about those winners. <laughs> like, those are like, oh, Gone with the Wind isn't the most racist American book of the first half of the century. Who knew? Who knew? Shock. Yeah. Tight race. Yeah. It turns <laughs> out there's so a lot of competition for that. There's one called The Store um, that I, as I was reading, it was like, oh, 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 oh my God. Like, I, okay. Oh, yeah. I knew we were kind of racist. I mean, we still are kind of racist. I knew we were especially racist back in the 1930s, but holy crow, that is really, really racist. And they liked it so much, they gave it the Pulitzer. So, okay. Yeah. We've gotten a little better, actually. Actually, I don't think there's been any exceptional racist Pulitzer winners recently. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Slip baby steps. Yeah. Well, you know, it's all we can take. Uh, okay. F- one right. more last question here. Top sure. Chef, Iron Chef, or Chopped? I don't watch any of those anymore, but of all those I've what? ever watched, it was, yeah. I don't watch, I actually don't really watch cooking shows anymore. Top Chef is the one I watched for a long time. And I got a little tired of the, like, the drama over the cooking. I like to cook, right? Mm-hmm. I, I enjoy the cooking. I mean, I enjoy cooking myself. I'm going to be doing a lot of cooking the next couple of weeks. Um, that one always seemed to be, the, to me, for a little while at least, it was the most about the food. But I think even like all reality television, it eventually became more about the personalities and the drama and less about the actual cooking. I could be wrong. Yeah, I'm sure Tom Colicchio would have thoughts on that. Um, Let, Last Chance Kitchen has really brought like, you know, into question the sanctity yeah. of the event. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, yeah. And there was the year that Kristen, who ended up winning, but she was like bounced to Last Chance Kitchen. It's like, yeah. Are we doing this just to get people to watch Last Chance Kitchen? Like, come on. Come on. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But, the yeah, integrity of the sport is gone. They also stopped. Yes, right, that's a good way to put it. They also stopped posting. There was a point where they posted a lot of the recipes online. Like if you watch the Great British Baking Bake Off, whatever it's called. I know it's two different titles. But that show, which I think is actually very, very good, even though it's kind of narrow, the types of food. But those recipes all show up online. Like they're supposed to provide or convert their dishes into recipes and like no that's useful like when top chef used to do that i would often go look and if it's whether i was recreating a dish exactly or simply trying to take inspiration hey what did they do what was that ingredient what was that technique they did right there that i wasn't familiar with i just want ideas right everyone's always looking if you like to cook you're always trying to come up with new things and i found that top chef once they stopped doing recipes they kind of got away from that and it's utility to me as a show to help me come up with clever new ideas in my own kitchen just disappeared. And then I was simply watching for entertainment. That's fine. I'm not going to criticize anybody who wants to watch that show. It just spoke to me less by that point. I hear you. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you for taking time out of a very busy schedule for all of us right now. It's it's like all podcasts all the time. That's all I do. Podcasts and play board games. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for coming on. We really appreciate it. We appreciate your insight into the draft and into the White Sox farm system. And hopefully, you know, if baseball ever starts up again, we can have you back on during the season. Absolutely. I look forward to it. Thanks. Again, thanks to the athletic senior baseball writer, Keith Law, for joining us. Make sure to check out his piece on the top 30 draft prospects in this year's draft. Also, tune into his podcast, The Keith Law Show, on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to subscribe to his show and leave a review as well. James, it's that time of year when From the 108, a White Sox blog, runs their White Sox Twitter tournament, and it began oh, is on is it Sunday- like an annual thing? Is there like some rhyme or reason to it that they're claiming? 
it's it's an annual event that's been going on for decades. Maybe you've paid attention to it, but no, it, it started on Sunday night with you as a number fifteen seed. By the way, in the celeb bracket, I'm I'm the number two seed. First of all, how does it make you feel to be the number fifteen seed while I'm the number two? I reject the entire random person has a Twitter poll, and we all care about it for reasons unknown. Uh, economy, and I refuse to participate in it. <laughs> I'll tell you why I participated in it. Like, we freaking lost our shit for two weeks because Fox Sports MLB, like, ran some Twitter <laughs> poll about who were the best fans. Like, what What are we doing? We were proving we were the best fans, James. We got to, we got to the final, didn't we? I think. I think we lost to the Dodgers. I was I didn't vote, but I was Braves. I was tracking. Lost to the Braves. The, the Braves. <laughs> the fuck. Goddamn SEC wins again. This is bullshit. But no. Uh, first of all, we're we're in the celebrity bracket, which that's a that is a stretched version of the word celebrity. But you crushed Brian Billick. You got seventy five percent of the vote. You have moved on to your next opponent, the next round, where you will face some dude named Scott Merkin. So I want you to, you know, cut a promo, shit talk Scott Merkin, and let the people know why they should vote for you instead of him. Scott Merkin will um, inevitably campaign repeatedly for himself on Twitter and give credence to this entire tournament, um, which I think is so disqualifyingly embarrassing that you should. Still go and vote for him because I don't care, and he probably does. So, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you why I care. I'm just hyper competitive. Why, why am I a 15 seed and you're a two seed, and you're we're not playing? Isn't that how the, a 16 seed thing go, works? I I don't know. I I, I I this is it's an odd bracket because they've got 108 people in it. So, kudos to them for doing all that math. That's that's a lot of work to do. They figured it out. I admit that that's complicated, but I will refrain from giving kudos of any kind to anything involving this. <laughs> I, uh, I I just know that last year I think I was a 13 seed, and I got to the final four. I think or the elite eight. I got to. I know. I just know that I lost to White Sox Dave. As everybody loses to White Sox Dave in this thing, it's just a White Sox Dave coronation ceremony more than anything. But James mm. doesn't want you to vote for him, but I want you to vote for James. Simply because it'll keep making James mad. And I love when James is mad because he'll be like, I don't care about this. This is stupid. Stop voting for me. And I'll just bring it up, texting him nonstop the results, and it'll drive him crazy. And that's just something we can all do while we've got nothing else to do. We could drive James crazy. I mean, I can't block your number, but it probably won't help for work purposes. No. <laughs> I'll just I'll just text you from Lynn's phone. It's fine. Oh, okay. <laughs> Well, I'll have your your lady's number then. <laughs> oh no! What are you gonna do? <laughs> um, I'm gonna interview her for an hour and write a long profile about you. They got fairly dicked down. I'm a ramming man. <laughs> I think this is probably an official record, save for our very first episode. This is the latest we've ever been into a podcast episode before Cam finally did a drop. <laughs> Eat my ass. Yeah, Cam has just been. Lazy as shit. Who's my today? little Jimmy Pop. Yeah, now he's trying oh, to make up market. for lost time. Uh all right. Well, I think, you know, it's time for shout outs. I'm gonna send my shout out to a neighbor I didn't know I had. On Sunday, NBC Sports Chicago's Chicago Bulls beat writer, Casey Johnson, tweeted out a photo of his two sons playing, you know, basketball at a basketball court, and they were the only two people there. And while I saw the photo, I realized that the photo was taken at the high school that is just, I literally live, you know, two streets down from, and it's the same place where I take Frankie for a walk. So KC lives in my neighborhood. He lives in our neighborhood, James, because we do live in the same town. That's our turf, baby. Let's go down there and jump them. Yeah, we, we do. Front of his kids. We're, we're, we're separated by a bit. You're on, by Bryn Mawr, correct? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm up north on Norwood. So there's, there's some distance between us, but we are still technically in the same neighborhood. But I do think that means KC lives in my direct little neighborhood. So I'm yeah. going to be on the lookout for you, KC Johnson. Here's a hypothetical question you for out. you, James. Isn't he like seven foot five? He's tall. 
But the Edgewater Sports Writer Mafia, which is you, me, and Casey. Sick the jab on us pretty hard. But do you think if the three of us teamed up, we could take on the Homewood Flossmore Chicago Sports Media Mafia? <laughs> yes. For those who don't know, the Homewood – I mean, this is this is just a partial list. I'm sure I'm leaving off 45 people. But it consists of the guy who James is going to destroy in the 108 tournament, Scott Merkin, Chuck Garfine, Jason Benetti, the scores Lawrence Holmes, Chicago Tribune sports editor Amanda Kashubes, and – a lot of people. There's like so many people, but I honestly think we could take them because, you know, Not we to got – we kind of lose the PR war once we like – one of us punches Benetti. <laughs> Everyone loves that guy. Uh, yeah, but if he swings first, all bets are off. So that's the thing. We got to goad him into swinging. Maybe we can get him on yeah. the podcast and talk a ton of shit. What really gets him going? What's, what's the maddest you've ever seen, Benetti? I don't know. I've never seen him mad. <laughs> we have a project for the next three months. <laughs> We're going to do extensive research in how to piss off Jason Benetti. I mean, he doesn't even get mad when he hangs out with Dan Dockich. And Dan Dockich makes everybody mad. So this is not yeah. going to be easy to do. James, who's your shout-out for? Um, My shout-out is a... What's the speculative shout out? <laughs> it's, it's to United Parcel Service. I'm counting on you on Wednesday. That PlayStation 4 is going to be... At my building, a safe distance from the door. I can run out and pick it up with oh, gloves. So you didn't even have a PlayStation? No. See, I thought when you were talking about, we were we were texting about how you got to convince your wife. I thought you were trying to just to convince her to buy the game. Now it makes no. more sense to me. <laughs> I was like, damn, James, just buy the game. <laughs> Understandable. Okay, now I get it. Because that's, that's, that's an expense. Yeah. But, I, I was telling him, it's like, it's a DVD player, and you can watch, you can watch, watch your workout so videos on it. <laughs> DVDs well, are so huge right the gym. <laughs> She's got some, like, Brazilian butt lift DVDs that we can watch while when they shut down the gym. <laughs> Brazilian butt lift DVDs? <laughs> <laughs> Have you been using so them? So I hear. <laughs> yeah, why not? Yeah, James, I got time. James is going to have the, he's going to be thick by the time the season starts. <laughs> <laughs> all right well uh will help me in the clubhouse and be like hey man you got a few minutes like nah i'm a little whoa yeah, just just drop your pencil in front of the lockers oops <laughs> i got a minute i got an hour for you <laughs> ton of sex <laughs> uh all right uh that that i think wraps up this episode of white Sox business thanks again to keith law for joining us thank you to james for joining us for the 50 second straight episode this was episode 52 of this show 52 minutes in honor make sure if you're not subscribed to the athletic to do so to stay up to date on james's and keith's latest content you could save 40 percent off your first year subscription by visiting the athletic.com slash south side that's the athletic.com slash south side all one word thanks for listening 